Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Hello, and welcome to the show. Anyone who knows us knows that we are absolutely obsessed with the Gilded Age, which we have been loosely defining as that era between about 1880 and the sinking of the Titanic. And today, via our friends, the Bowery Boys, we are happy to introduce you to Carl Raymond, a social and culinary historian who is the host of the Gilded Gentleman podcast. Carl's subjects swirl around our former subjects, kind of like we are always hitting the 1893 World's Fair. Carl seems to hit on a lot of things that we've talked about in the past. Gilded Age heiresses, the Mrs. Astor, Jenny Jerome Churchill, Emily Post, Bertha Palmer, who we haven't covered yet, but we have talked about in a couple former episodes. He even talked with Carol Wallace, one of the few interviews that we've had. She's the woman who wrote To Marry an English Lord, the book that inspired this, the History Chicks podcast. We both enjoyed listening to these episodes so much, and we thought you would like them too. We are about to bring you two of his episodes, one about the servants of Old New York and one about the madness of the millionaires in Old New York. (laughs) And so... When I went to visit the Newport Cottages, I was able to take the servant tour of the Elms before I took a tour of the main house. And it was such a good way to, you know, visit the cellars, visit the attics and see what really happened behind the scenes before you saw the glittering golden surface of what was happening in public. And so we think that's the way we're going to present them to you. In Act One, Invisible Magicians, Carl is joined by Esther Crane. She's the author of The Gilded Age in New York, 1870 to 1914. And they pay tribute to the world of the domestic servant, the vast numbers of what they call invisible magicians, without whom the dinners and the balls and the daily workings of the household of the Gilded Age would never have happened. And now on with the show. The images of the opulent mansion's sprawling lawns, highly polished silver and crystal, and of course, impeccably cared for fashions and exquisitely prepared French food are some of the first images our minds conjure up when we think about the Gilded Age. And all of that is accurate, but the story of the armies of servants, housekeepers, butlers, footmen, ladies' maids, parlor maids, chambermaids, gardeners, valets, chefs, cooks, and scullery maids that were all required to keep it going, make it look flawless, and make sure their employers always put their highly polished right foot forward. Well, that's perhaps the most important story of all. Quite simply, without these workers whose hours were long and whose pay was low, without them, despite how much money their employers had, without them, none of that outward glamour of this world would have ever come to be. Today, I'm joined by author and speaker Esther Crane to take a deeper look into the world below stairs and see what went on quite literally behind the gold. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every two weeks, I'll take you beneath the glitter and the gold for a closer look at America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. 
Today, we are focused on the Gilded Age of New York and the story of the women and the men who formed the legions of domestic help to make the upper middle class homes as well as the grand mansions of Fifth Avenue and Newport run and to create the image that it all just ran by, well, magic. In 1890, a professor of history at Vassar College, Lucy Maynard Salmon, wrote the very first deeply detailed work. It was a study of the world of the domestic servant, and it opened up the realities of this world to the rest of the world. Using questionnaires submitted by Vassar alumni, she attempted to give accurate statistics and a clear portrait of life below stairs. Her work remained the standard reference into this world until astonishingly the 1970s. She ended her work with a plea that those of domestic service not be considered outside society, but rather part of it. And she strongly advocated for reform, both in the education and training of staff, as well as for those who employed them. In more recent times, and for perhaps a less academic audience, it's the great social dramas that we love that show us not only the life above stairs, but life below stairs as well. The great upstairs, downstairs, perhaps, is the classic. Of course, everyone's beloved Downton Abbey, and most recently, of course, the just-premiered new Julian Fellows series, The Gilded Age. All give equal weight to the worlds of the wealthy and those who make sure they keep up its appearance. So often, they really were the invisible magicians, barely even seen or heard. And in fact, even some mistresses like Alva Vanderbilt had special shoes made especially for her staff so they could move through the rooms and the halls completely noiselessly. And of course, each mansion was outfitted with staircases and hallways behind the walls with unobtrusive doors to allow servants to appear and disappear as if by magic. But their lives were not magic. And as we know, the work was hard, the hours were long, and that pay was low. But without them, this world that seemed so gilded would never have existed at all. Today, I'm joined by a truly wonderful guest, Esther Crane, to talk about several aspects of this world and clarify its realities. Esther Crane, a native New Yorker, is a writer and editor. She is the author of The Gilded Age in New York, 1870 to 1910, and New York City in 3D in the Gilded Age. In 2008, she launched Ephemeral New York, a website that chronicles the city's past. Ephemeral New York has been featured in the New York Times, the New York Daily News, the New York Post, and other publications. She speaks regularly on topics related to New York City history and conducts walking tours that explore New York's hidden pockets and little-known stories. Esther, I am so honored to have you join me here today. I am thrilled to be here, Carl. <laughs> this, is, this is a treat. If I can talk about everyday life in the Gilded Age, this is, this is wonderful. You certainly can, <laughs> as much as you can. Esther and I have become really great friends. And this show actually came out of a coffee that Esther and I were, were having together. It was a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking over different subjects that we could do together. And we hit on this subject of, of servants. And Esther, you just completely lit up. And of all the <laughs> subjects that you've covered on the Gilded Age, and there are an awful lot of them, you're pretty passionate about this world below stairs. Why is that? Well, it combines the two things I love about New York, which is, well, you know, just New York history, 
But as you said about um, ephemeral New York, sort of the hidden pockets in little known corners. And the servants, as you explained, were hidden. I mean, they were 16% of the entire population of New York. That's an enormous number of people. I think it came out to 55,000 people in about in the 1870s or 1880s. Um, yet these people were supposed to be inconspicuous, not not seen, their magic, as you put it, not viewed. And it was all, you know, downstairs, upstairs, backstairs, away from the life that the family or the owners of the house wanted to showcase. But it's time to tell their story, don't you think? Absolutely. <laughs> so let's really dive in here. And we certainly know that domestic help was certainly prevalent by the beginning of the Gilded Age, say the 1870s or so. For households of various economic levels, not only the the grand mansions, but New York had had domestic help really for much of the 19th century. Can you sort of take us through, Esther, how we got to this world of the Gilded Age in terms of domestic staff? Yeah, I mean, having a servant was nothing out of the ordinary. And, you know, New York didn't officially outlaw slavery until I think it was 1827, although there were many free black communities you know, in the city and in Brooklyn as well. And people were used to having household help or help with their estate. So once it was outlawed, uh, a lot of ex-slaves became uh, servants. Um, they were paid. They lived in the house or they lived away from the house. It just depends on the situation. Then with the rise of thousands and thousands of European immigrants coming in that first wave in the 1840s, and then after the Civil War, even in greater numbers, there was a there were a lot of people in the city uh, who were you know considered unskilled. They had no you know profession or skills that could be transferred to you know working in business or working in the arts or anything like that. And they were they became servants in the households of the people who were making a lot of money uh, after the Civil War when the Gilded Age really began. Well, the myth is certainly persistent that it was always the Irish servant, but it was really a little more complex than that, really. It was a number of nationalities. Yeah, I mean, the Irish servants, and they were mostly women, and they were just sort of nicknamed, you know, your Bridget, which is, you know, sort of demeaning, but that's how it was. Uh, they were a huge group of servants, but there were also many German servants, Scandinavians, you know, later on became Italian. Eastern European. Um, at some point, it was so hard to find a good servant. I mean, you know, probably every ethnic group that came to New York City that immigrated here at one point became, you know, they were members that were employed in households. Edith Wharton's memoir, A Backward Glance, which she wrote in the 1930s, and she there was a section of it where she's recreating her childhood and thinking back to New York of the 1870s and thinking about to her mother's house and her mother's kitchen. And she talks about the cooks in her kitchen as a child were actually two Southern women, two Southern Black women. Do you have any commentary on that? Because that's sort of a surprise in a way. There were these Southern dishes that were landing on Edith Wharton's table as a child, which is really sort of a surprise, but yeah. maybe not. I mean, certainly you had migration of African-Americans from the South coming up to the cities, including New York. But New York City's African-American population actually decreased after the Civil War with the draft riots where they were targeted. And uh, with so much European immigration, their numbers just became sort of dwarfed. So they sort of certainly were still working in domestic situations, but just not as much as they would have been in the first half of the 19th century. 
in uh, one post of Ephemeral New York, you mentioned this wonderful resource, which I had to just dash off and find online. It was Mary Elizabeth Carter's Millionaire Households and Their Domestic Economy. It was a, a book that was written in, in 1903, which really chronicles how these houses were set up. Can you just sort of take us through what a household might have been like and how it was structured? I mean, some of these had dozens and dozens of servants, right? Yeah, and we don't pay enough, um, we don't give enough attention to the management skills that it actually, you know, were required to manage all of these people. These were kind of like mini workplaces, you know, I mean, everybody has a manager at their job. You know, there were these domestic managers that many of the wives, uh, wealthy women did, or they would outsource it to sort of their head housekeeper, who was um, the superintending housekeeper. So that would be a woman who was paid about fifty to one hundred and fifty dollars per month. Um, she was kind of like the foreman in the factory, if you will. She supervised all of the other maids and servants. Uh, she inspected their work. She actually had access to, I guess, what we would call like petty cash. You know, she could pay for deliveries and maybe go to the market if there was something that were, was needed. She was kind of like the stand-in for the wife or the woman of the household if that person didn't have the time or the skills to actually do all of this managing. Because we're talking about in the most luxurious homes, maybe upwards of 20, 25 people. And then a typical middle class or upper middle class could have maybe one to seven servants that would generally live in, but sometimes live outside of the house. I think that's so interesting. The housekeeper then was really, take the mistress aside, was really the most powerful female then in the household structure. Is oh, that right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. She had the ability to fire people and she was probably tasked with also finding new help, which was, you know, extremely difficult at the time. How did you find help? Gosh, if she dismissed a under chambermaid, how did you get her replaced? Well, word of mouth was pretty big. You know, she could talk to another superintendent housekeeper in another family and see if they had, you know, if anybody knew of somebody. There were also ads taken out in the newspapers. It would be the situation wanted kind of ad where um, somebody who maybe worked as a chambermaid before and was let go or didn't like their old place could put an ad in the paper. And there's a wonderful illustration from a Frank Leslie magazine issue in the 1870s of all of these women like sitting around in the newspaper office, like filling out their ad. And they're all women of different ages and different ethnicities, but that's what you would do. You would go and you would put an ad in the paper. And there are also servant employment agencies that the family or the head of the servants, the superintending house housekeeper, uh, could go to as well. They would have, not to be flip about it, but sort of like fresh off the boat, you know, right from Castle Garden, like people coming in, and uh, they would be employed. They could come in on a Saturday and find themselves a job as a, as a you know, laundress in a, in a fancy mansion two days later. And references were important, too, right? Because I bet word traveled really fast in Gilded Age New York. If, if you didn't work out, then that could be tough, right? But I get the feeling, though, that a lot of it was personality driven. You know, if, you know, let's say a chambermaid didn't like the woman who was supervising her or the family, you know, she could just go and find another family because there were so many openings for servants. I think it's kind of like the economy today where there's so many jobs that people are trying to fill that they're not being as choosy as you would think. And sometimes 
this surprised me when I was doing some reading, that sometimes the mistress of the house didn't even know that these jobs were turning over. All of a sudden, it would be another right. undermaid or another chambermaid somewhere. And, oh, who are you? you yeah. Know? yeah. And it, it really de- it really depended a lot on the family. Um, you know, some families, they wanted, they were warmer. They wanted their servants to feel, you know, like they were a little bit more part of things, but certainly not part of the family. I mean, let's not get, it's not like today where, you know, a, a wealthy family might say, oh, our nanny, she's one of the family. You know, it's it's not quite like that. But they would want maybe a warmer atmosphere. They would be more liberal with how late she could stay out, which might be 10 o'clock after she finished up all of her duties. In addition to having a Sunday, a half-day Sunday off, they might give her another day off. And then there were others who were, you know, much stricter, really sort of nitpicked, got into the maid or servant's business and really sort of drove them away. There were huge debates about this, and it was called the servant question or the servant girl question. And all of these newspaper articles in the society pages would all, you know, would go over this endlessly. It was just the topic of for like 30 years in the newspapers where wealthy women would be just going over and over, like, how, why is it so hard to find good help? And just giving their thoughts on that. And what did they say? Why did they think it was hard to find good help? Well, I can actually quote a few people. Oh, no, I'd love that. Because I found some fantastic newspaper articles. And I'm going to read the quotes of two different women. So there's one who's the more liberal type of woman of the house. And then there's one who is extremely strict. And this is a Mrs. Lester Carr. Now, I don't know who Lester Carr was. I think he's lost to the ages. <laughs> but apparently it was somebody who made a lot of money. And um, his wife was, you know, complaining about the servant situation. And here's what she says. And this is sort of a roundtable conversation that different society women are having. So imagine them all sitting around and then the, the reporter is just kind of taking all of these notes. I never allow my servants an afternoon off during the week. Why should I lose so much time and put myself to a great deal of inconvenience in doing the work myself? I allow Sunday afternoons off because I believe in that. Also, when the servant's work is finished at night, I am perfectly willing that they should go out as they please. Only one servant must always be at home. I don't ask where they are going, and they may stay out until the house is closed at 11 o'clock. That is late enough, and after that they can't come in. 10 o'clock is too early. You cannot start out at nine and make a call in an hour. So presumably the maid or the servant's work would be done around nine and they have two hours to themselves to maybe socialize or, you know, meet up with other servants. And a lot of them did socialize at their local parish because a lot of them were Catholic. Weren't they exhausted at that point in the day? (laughs) I, I, I would think some of these jobs, I mean, that's another thing that I find fascinating is that some of these jobs were exhausting. They must have been exhausting. And I think also just mentally, just being inside somebody else's house working for them, where they're probably not that nice or just so remote, you barely know them. I can imagine these girls at nine o'clock finishing up, just going screaming to their local parish or wherever they're going to meet some other servants and just doing what we all do, which is just venting. You can just imagine like, you know, how refreshing that must have been. And then they have to go home and do it all over again. And so, and Wester, you had another quote too, dying to know what you found. So this is Mrs. MacArthur. Um, again, don't know her husband's first name and don't know which MacArthur's we're talking about here, but they were obviously wealthy. And this is a woman who's a little bit more liberal 
with her servants and the way that she, she actually calls out the way that other women treat their servants so poorly. And she says, I think if people would treat servants less like animals or part of their household furniture, they would get along better with them. I know people who say, keep servants down as much as you can and you will get more out of them. No, I have not been troubled with incapable servants. I do not, of course, require a professional cook. I require a good plain cook and the food must be prepared in a palatable manner. There are some servants I could not keep and I may have to try several times before I find one who suits me, but I never fail to do that eventually. I have sometimes wondered if it were, if I was easier than other people with my servants that they and I have so little trouble. I have servants who have been with me seven and eight years. If mistresses were kinder and more thoughtful, I think there would not be as much trouble as there is. So she's, you know, probably right. I mean, if you're, if you have a problem keeping servants, like the common denominator is you, mistress of the house, um, you might want to like change your style. I think that's what's so interesting, and that's what Salmon said in her study that I that I mentioned at the beginning of the of the show. It's she said that yes, servants and staff need to be trained and educated, but so do the employers. You know, we all know today that it's really an art to being a good boss, and I don't think that's really changed so much, right? Right, and there actually was a group that formed to help train. Um, not just the servant, but to also give guidance for prices and rules for the people who employed them. And that would be a group with the wonderful name of the Society for the Encouragement of Faithful Domestic Servants. That's a mouthful. <laughs> actually, it sounds kind of crazy to our contemporary ears, but they actually formed with the very sincere idea that servants and the people who employed them need to get on better, and then there would be less turnover, and everybody would benefit because the servant, who presumably would be an immigrant or somebody who was of a lesser class, would learn uh, to be more refined, would learn how to behave in society, quote-unquote, and the upper-class person employing them would get the, the help that they need to run their house. I mean, somebody has to put the coal on in a cold night you know, every or the wood, like every so many hours to keep those fires going, right? Well, it seems like there probably was no such thing as the the perfect servant in the same way there was certainly no such thing as the perfect employer. But I think people, what certainly sounds anyway, had the idea of what's ideal and what's perfect for what certain role. It seems like French domestics served as ladies' maids and Englishmen served as butlers and, you know, things like uh, roles like that. Well, certainly everybody wanted, if you could afford it, a, a French cook because French food was considered, thanks to Delmonico's, you know, just the highest form of gastronomical wonderfulness. But with Irish immigrants being such a huge part of the servant class, um, not everybody thought that they were the best, maybe. A lot of the Irish immigrants came from the countryside. You know, they they, they didn't know... They didn't. They weren't refined necessarily, um, where some of the other servants that came might have had a little bit more of what an upper class American at the time would have thought of as class, for lack of a better word. Just to go back to that New York Times article, Mrs. Carr, Mrs. Lester Carr, also had a comment on the type of ethnicities that she liked and disliked. Um, so she said, I never take a servant, if I can help it, who has not been in service in the old country. 
They do not know that they are servants unless they have been. That is one thing they should know. It does not make any difference what they are. They may be ladies, but when they take a position, they are hired for servants, and that is what they must be. The Irish Americans do not realize this, neither do the German Americans. An Irish servant, I think, is the best. So I think she's differentiating between a, somebody who's been here and an Irish family versus somebody who's new. I know the Swedes are considered to be, but they have no heart. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, to talk so frankly like that is just so bizarre to our ears. It's very shocking. And, you know, that's how people thought. And there might be somebody else who said, because Mrs. Carr references that I know the Swedes are considered to be the best, uh, they would, you know, lots of people thought the Swedes were the best and the Irish were the worst and the Germans were uh, good for this, but maybe not good for that. And of course, you still had African-American servants. Unfortunately and sadly, they took the almost the lowest positions, which would be maybe living in the carriage house as grooms for the horses. Just these generalities are so difficult to, it is, to hear in, with our modern ears and modern sensibilities. The people very much thought, you know, each European culture or each culture from anywhere was just so different. And people subscribed to such narrow views because that's just how people thought, just to differentiate themselves from the next person. And that's really a lot of what the Gilded Age was, was differentiating yourself usually by wealth or position or background or ancestry, oh, yeah. whatever it happened to be, I right? I mean, there's, there's, the divisions are just, they're, they're fascinating. And I can't say that we don't think that way today. We just aren't so outward about them. I mean, you have, of course, the old rich, the new rich, the shoddyites, who were the, the people who created, you know, the crappy military uniforms and other goods that just fell apart, but made gazillions of dollars, you know, and everybody stratified themselves in some way. There's the, the Academy of Music crowd, and then there's the Metropolitan crowd. And people were just very open about that then. I think we think the same way. I mean, the human brain hasn't changed. We just don't like that we think that way. <laughs> <laughs> we are actually, there is so much more that we're going to talk about, but we are going to take a little break now and we'll just be back in a couple of minutes. And now we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, and I'm here with Esther Crane, and we are talking about the invisible magicians, the servants in Gilded Age New York. Now, Esther, we've talked about some roles that servants had. We've talked about some generalities, but I'm really curious, how about the servants talking for themselves? Is there anywhere we can hear their voice today? Uh, yes, we can, because luckily, there's some outspoken servants, first of all, who reply to the New York Times roundtable of all of those women weighing in on servants. And there's one letter in particular that was published that I'd love to read. It's titled, What an Irish Girl Thinks. Um, so she's replying to Mrs. Carr and Mrs. MacArthur, and this is what she says. So much has been said lately throughout your paper on the servant question that I venture to ask you to be kind enough to listen to a servant's view of the case. That our faults have been told and retold is certainly a fact. Some of those faults I am willing to admit, others I deny. And as to what nationality makes the best servants, I hold that there are good and bad servants of every nationality. And I also hold that there are good and bad mistresses, good, kind, conscientious mistresses whose every word and action command respect from their servants and who have never had and never will have any trouble in getting good servants. 
But there is another class who look upon their servants as a lot of inferior beings, put into this world for the sole purpose of drudging for them from morning till night, and who are afraid that if they treat their servants with anything like respect, it will lower them one step on the social ladder, which they found so very difficult to climb. If such people would only remember that we are human beings, flesh and blood, just as they are, but lacking all their advantages, education, etc., which go a great way to help people overcome their faults, they would have better servants. But it seems to be an understood thing that the servant must be kept down. Tradesmen, laborers, in fact, everybody who work for a living look forward to the end of their day's work. But the New York servant, no. She can sit inside her prison bars, her basement gates, and dare not go out and get a breath of God's fresh air, which might help her temper and so benefit her mistress for the next day's work. I call that a mild form of slavery. I love this woman. I we know. have to find her. I, I just want to jump up and down. And <laughs> I, she really tells it straight. The, I mean, the, right? hidden, the hidden heroines and heroes of a society. I, and we don't have a name? No don't name. Know. I believe this was an 1895 article, but there's no name. There's no identification of even what part of Manhattan she's working in when she came here. Wow. It's almost such a wonderfully written letter. I almost... It's almost hard to believe that you would think somebody who was a servant would have written this, but the rage is so real that I I believe it. Well, I'm glad it got written at all and written at that time. And published. And published. <laughs> now, one thing I want to talk about that I think is really important for us to talk a little bit about is Gilded Age society was, of course, trying to copy European society, and particularly in the world of, of domestic help, they were trying to copy the British system and the British structure. But being a servant in one of the grand houses in, in England, as we certainly see in Downton Abbey, for example, was actually very different than being a servant in an Astor or Vanderbilt mansion in, in New York. Can you talk about the different models and what was different about the servant experience in those two worlds? The difference is that England had a, a caste system. America did not. And uh, if you were born into the sort of servant class, you stayed with the family that your parents worked for, your grandparents even. That was just sort of accepted. In America, and there's a lot of, in the articles about the servant question, this is brought up many times, you know, why is it so much easier in England than it is in America? And that's because America is just founded on the idea that, you know, we're all equal and anybody can rise from their, you know, quote unquote station. And there's a lot of talk from servants in some of these articles who say that, you know, I don't have to be a servant. I don't like this. I don't like living in these people's houses. Um, it doesn't work for me. I'm going to go get a job in the needle trades. I'm going to go be a shop girl. Same thing with the male servants. You know, maybe somebody's brought on as um, a valet or as a, a coachman. They don't like it. They feel that they're being um, disrespected they can get a job somewhere else. It's just a completely different mindset from England and America, even though, you know, we sort of came out of the British and that kind of world. Another thing that I, that I found out too that makes it different is that the British who, the upper-class British who were used to employing servants, they learned how to do that from their parents, their grandparents. The problem in America is that you had so many newly minted millionaires or just, you know, wealthier people who could 
you know, suddenly they can afford servants. They had absolutely no idea how to manage them. They had no idea how to do it. There was no system set in place, no rules for them to follow. And it often just ended in disaster. And that all really contributed to the servant problem that, that you is, were talking about, right? These the shifting jobs and people quitting. And that didn't certainly exactly. didn't seem to happen in the British system because it, you didn't quit. Right. You didn't have so much shifting from station to station. Uh, there's actually an interesting quote that I read in one of these servant question articles. It was from an Irish woman who now employed her own servant, but she started as a servant. And she said, you know, I know I know how to treat my servant, my maid, basically, because I was one. The people that I work for and all of these other people, they have absolutely no idea. And therefore, there's just so much strife and hence the servant question. Yeah, I think that's something we really don't think too much about is the um, the lack of experience on the part of the employer. We sort of congratulate ourselves in America. And of course, you know, the idea that we're all equal is, you know, wonderful and you know, has obviously worked out very well for people in our country. And it's, you know, it's a great thing to not be held back because of, you know, your station where you were born or who your parents were. But at the same time, you did have, especially in the Gilded Age, uh, with so much money being, you know, turned over and people making a lot of money, you had all of these people who had no management skills, no idea how to do it. And there's no classes you could take, you know, how to manage my servant. It wasn't like that. I love hearing directly from these the voices of these servants in these letters and in pieces that you found. It seems it seems though as if some were were happy with their situations, but then there could be some other emotions in there too. Do you have can you share some of that with us? Yeah, I found something written by a servant just about the loneliness of it. And that's something that we don't think of. We think, you know, you're so busy during the day, you're you're working for this family, and then you have your you know, few hours time off and you socialize with other people, you know, it's isolating. And this is a really interesting paragraph I want to read. I don't know uh, anything about this servant, except uh, what she calls her awful lonesomeness. Um, She says, I went for general housework because I knew all about it. And there were only three in the family. I never minded being alone evenings in my own room, for I'm always reading or something. And I don't go out hardly at all. But then I always know I can, and that there is somebody to talk to if I like. But there, except to give orders, they had nothing to do with me. It got to feel sort of crushing at last. I cried myself sick, and at last I gave it up, though I don't mind the work at all. I know there are good places, but the two I tried happened to be about alike, and I shan't try again. So, yeah, it's heartbreaking. It is. And you, you think, too, <laughs> <It's very emotional. laughs> I, I might be referring to, you know, servant girls, and I don't mean that in a flippant way, but they were really girls. There were a lot of young women, 15, 16, 17 years old. I mean, can you imagine a 16-year-old working in somebody else's house, living there, knowing nobody in this country, but maybe a few other servants to socialize with occasionally? That's crushing. One of the things that I I think could even be construed as on the positive side of the life of a servant is when you are such a young girl or or young boy or whatever it happens to be coming to this country. This was a dangerous city. This was a scary city. Even even then, if you went into domestic service, at least that would give you some level of of safety and security. You were housed. That's a great point because it makes me also want to just point out that Servant work wasn't the only kind of work open to girls and women at the time. 
What people don't realize is that in the Gilded Age, a third of all women worked in some capacity. You know, people didn't just sit home. Most people in the city were working class or poor, and they needed the money. But they, they had options. There was the garment trade. There were shopkeep girls. There were other places that they could work. Uh, if you worked as a servant, you at least had your room and board paid for. That was included in your salary. You had your meals taken care of. You weren't making very much money, but you didn't want for many things. You didn't have to get car fare, as they called it, for the for the L or for the stage or the or the streetcar. You didn't have any place to go, so you didn't have a lot of expenses. And a lot of these women were able to save money, send home to their families in the old country, as it was called, or even give to their local parish and feel a part of the city. There were also many situations where servants were, were happy in, in where they were. Um, I have this quote I want to read from a German girl. This is from a book I found. It's an obscure book that was really enlightening about just the way people lived in the early 1900s. So this is sort of at the cusp of the Gilded Age, right when the Gilded Age was kind of turning into more of the progressive era. And it was about people who were immigrants and the work that they found. And this is what uh, she had to say. Uh, she was a servant working in a home, and she says, Wherever I have been employed here, the food has always been excellent. In fact, precisely the same as that furnished to the employer's families. In Germany, it is not so. Servants are all put on an allowance, and their food is very different from that given to their masters. I like this country. I have a great many friends in New York, and I enjoy my outings with them. We go to South Beach or North Beach or Glen Island or Rockaway or Coney Island. If we go on a boat, we dance all the way there and all the way back, and we dance nearly all the time we are there. I like Coney Island best of all. It is a wonderful and beautiful place. I took a German friend, a girl who had just come out, down there last week, and when we had been on the razzle-dazzle, the shoot and the loop-the-loop, -loop, and down in the coal mine and all over the Bowery and up in the tower and everywhere else, I asked her how she liked it. She said, Ach, it is just like what I see when I dream of heaven. <laughs> That's a lovely quote. It is. And so you think, you know, it, it is a situation that worked out very well for some people. I imagine that this German girl who wrote that probably didn't stay a servant for very long. She probably married and had a family. But she seems to have been fond of, of her circumstance, and she understood it was something that would work out well for her. And the food was good. That was great. It's one of the questions I, I so often get when I do talks about um, food and dining of the Gilded Age is, what did the servants eat? Well, it's That's so interesting <laughs> because in the, in the big luxurious mansions where there would be like, you know, 12 or 15 or even 20 servants, they all had their own dining room and they had their own maid. They had a dining maid that worked in the dining room for the servants, which is, a, you know, this subservant, I guess you would call her. And they socialized. They enjoyed it. They got good food. Um, it became kind of like, you know, your workplace when you go to lunch with your coworkers or down to the cafeteria or the break room. So it wasn't all isolating for everyone. It wasn't all bad necessarily. I think there were a lot of people who got a lot out of it, especially knowing where they had come from in such maybe terrible circumstances in their home country in Europe with poverty and war. And this was an opportunity and it worked out. 
I think to me, when I think about all of this and, and so much of what you've been saying is the big takeaway for us is that it was different experiences for different people, depending on where you worked and who you worked for, and which is not so different from today, right? right? And, and it's so easy to get stuck in generalizations. Oh, in the Gilded Age, it was this. In this period, right. it was we have, this. We have these stock servant caricatures in our heads of the butler, which we should talk about. You know, the stern British kind of lurch-like person who uh, doesn't speak but stands there in his suit. There's something, of course, based on reality in that, but I don't think it was quite so so severe for everybody. So we ta- we've certainly talked about housekeepers and, and some of the female roles in the house, but what about the male roles? We certainly, the butler was the head of that tree, but what, what, what were other roles for, for men? Ah, okay. So the butler, of course, was sort of the, the head guy of the drawing room and he handled, he was almost at the level of the superintending housekeeper because he had his own staff of people. There was also the valet uh, or valet, as some people would call it. And this was a servant who was essentially in charge. He was sort of the equivalent of the lady's maid for the woman who laid out her clothes and her toilet and handled the personal details of her life and often traveled with her wherever she went in case she needed a touch-up or something. The valet did that for the male head of the household. He laid out his clothes, his business attire, and then his home attire. Don't forget, people changed outfits constantly in the Gilded Age. Um, And he just uh, took dry cleaning. Uh, He handled all of the personal aspects of the male head of the household's life. And he was often a confidant for the man of the household and probably knew things that the wife didn't even know. And, you know, of course, wouldn't breathe a word. I think that's so interesting, the issue of trust between some of the staff members and their employers. There was a story I read recently about, uh, again, it was Mamie Fish and her housekeeper. And I guess there was a lot of loyalty between the two of them until the housekeeper actually published anonymously a tell-all fictional story, <laughs> uh, which, of course, Mamie Fish found out about and she was dismissed. So they had to be, I think, a little careful about what they what they said. So as we got to the end of the 19th century and started into the 20th century, these grand houses declined and and the the roles for servants changed. Can you talk about how that sort of evolved into the, the new century? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of things played into it. First of all, the idea of having your own mansion or single family house was starting to fall out of favor. Um, and all of the new luxury apartment buildings that were trying to lure rich people who, you know, were very suspicious of the idea of living, as Mrs. Astor reportedly called it, living on a shelf in an apartment building. They had their own servants in the building, and you didn't have to employ your own. If you moved into a 15-room suite, uh, you had the building servants. And there are also rooms that they had. If you ever look at the Dakota, where they have those very small little windows on those top three floors of the mansard roof, those were for servants. Uh, they, you know, at the time, nobody wanted to live up there where all lots, lots of equipment was. The idea of a penthouse didn't actually happen until the 1920s. Uh, so they put the servants' rooms up there. So, But you didn't have to have your own servant. You had the building servants. Buildings had dining rooms. They had lots of amenities that we don't think of now, but you didn't need an army of servants. And I think the other thing, too, is it's really expensive to hire all of these people and manage them. It just became 
too much. I mean, I can't imagine growing up in this environment and watching your mother, maybe she's a wealthy woman, try to manage all of this. And now you're a young married woman. Do you really want to have to do that, spend your life doing that? I think there were more opportunities for women and they didn't really need a lot of that or want that. I also think that the slowdown of immigration played a big role in it too. Immigration law started to change around the turn of the century. And there wasn't quite the flow of people that were coming in uh, in the Gilded Age. And at a certain point uh, in the 19-teens, it all really came to a standstill. So people weren't as available to be your servants. So Esther, as we sort of wind down here, if there are a couple of things you would like a modern audience to realize or keep in their brains about the world of servants in the Gilded Age, are there a couple things that you really think are either misconceptions that need to be changed or what would you like a modern audience to take away? I think what I would want people to know is, first of all, just how many servants there were in New York City, 16% of the population, which is a huge number, and how varied all of the different situations were, um, as the letters and diary entries that I read can attest. And that it was very different from sort of the caricature of the, you know, that, that sort of servant class kind of thing. Um, and that the servants had the power to just quit. Nobody was indentured necessarily. It wasn't always so bad. It was, it was a job. They fulfilled their duties. If they didn't like it, they had other opportunities, generally speaking. That's not always true. But they, there was a lot of moving around and moving up. And that's what they came to this country to do. So Esther, there's a question that I often ask my guests and I would like to ask you as well. If you could sit down with anyone in the Gilded Age and have a little chat over a nice cup of tea, you are so well-versed in so many of the people and characters of the Gilded Age. Well, who would that be and, and what would you want to know? I think after reading her letter, the Irish girl who sent in her thoughts about being a servant, you can feel the rage and you can feel her just being so upset that all of these upper-class women are constantly posing the quote-unquote servant question, but not really asking the servants. And it's wonderful that the New York Times, which ran that article, actually printed her letter. And I would love to just talk to her about it, you know, take me through your day. What upsets you the most? What's, what's good about your job? What keeps you doing it? What do you think about during the day? Do you, what are your dreams? How old are you? I mean, I don't know anything about her. When did you come from Ireland? Are you one of the thousands of women who came all alone um, because Irish immigrants outnumbered Irish men and that created a, a lot of problems um, in terms of getting married and finding a, a social group? You know, what is what is your life like? I would love to I would love to talk to her. And she sounds very articulate and I'm sure she'd have a lot to say. And I would love to eavesdrop on the conversation that you had with her. Even though we can't hear from so many of the domestic uh, servants and help in these houses, it's it's a miracle and it's wonderful that we can at least hear from a few. Esther, thank you so much for joining me today. This was so, so, oh. you clarified so many things, certainly for me about about the Gilded Age and, and from the perspective of servants. And there's clearly so much more that we could say. I know, I, I, I love it. I would love it. to have you back. I, I wish, honestly, it would just be, if I could be a fly on the wall in a servant's life in Gilded Age, New York, I mean, that would just be 
fascinating and I could just really get a sense of what it was like. What was it like in those houses? You know, we're, we're so used to the photos of the exteriors. I want to know what was inside, you know, it just, just the daily life, the flow of all of these people. You had said during the break, oh, I, I wish we could do a part two. Well, maybe we should do a part two. I, I would certainly love to have you back. Thank you so much for joining You're me welcome. today. You're welcome, Carl. It was really fun. Very, could go on forever. <laughs> <laughs> that was indeed fun. And now we're going to leave the servants in their little bolt holes behind the scenes and move on to the ridiculous nonsensical spending of the other half of the Gilded Age. Act two, golden plates and dinners on horseback. Tales of dining in the Gilded Age. Carl's going to talk about Gilded Age dinners that are served on plates of gold with live swans swimming in a lake in the center of the table and even dinners on horseback. All true stories. The Gilded Age was, to state the obvious, a time to show off. If you had the money, of course. And for those who did, there just seemed to be no limits. And one of the most immediate, visible, and talked about ways that you could show off was with what you served on your table. Stories have floated around about the outrageousness of dinners and balls, including place settings of gold, courses of peacock and truffles, and dinners, which we'll discuss, that included live swans and horses. No, I don't mean to eat. These stories, my friends, are actually all true. However, there is so much more to say about food and dining in the Gilded Age, and this show takes you into the dining rooms, the ballrooms, and down into the kitchens to give you all a taste, so to speak, of how it all came to be. Now, I really have to issue this disclaimer right here. Do not listen to this episode unless you plan to have a meal directly following, because I can pretty much guarantee you'll be fairly hungry at the end. Hello, I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every two weeks over a nice cup of tea, I'll take you into the worlds of glitter and gold and explore all that lay underneath during America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian periods. I, like so many of you, I am sure, have been so anxiously anticipating the launch of the new Julian Fellows series on HBO, The Gilded Age. I certainly loved Downton Abbey, but the reason that I love all of Julian Fellows' work is because of the details that he includes in his settings, in his characters, and in his stories. In this new series, The Gilded Age, I must admit that I was anxiously awaiting to see the details of, you guessed it, the food. And so you can imagine my excitement when we were shown in episode one of this first season, the lavish supper that was laid out on the banquet buffet at Bertha Russell's grand party. You know, the one to which no one came. Now, looking at those towers of puff pastry and ornately decorated roasts and garnishes that actually even themselves had garnishes on them, the message was really clear. Food, like fashion, architecture, and the right address, was used to prove that you had arrived and that you had money to burn. 
even more importantly, you were taking your cues from European style and culture. Louis XIV may have been long gone at this point, but there was really no good reason why you just shouldn't recreate the splendor of Versailles on any old Monday night. In the first episode of The Gilded Age, I scanned that banquet table looking for dishes that I knew from my research, and it took me about three seconds to find the one that I most expected to find. Near the head of the table, next to a candelabra, occupying pride of place, was what looked like to me a faithful recreation of the famous salmon a la Chambord. Now, this dish, salmon a la Chambord, and I do invite you to visit my Instagram account, at Carl the Gilded Gentleman, or my website to actually see an image. This is the one that, for me, encapsulates most of what we need to know about the kind of food that was found on the tables of the fictional Russells, but on the very real tables of the Vanderbilts, Astors, Goulds, and Morgans. The basis of this dish is a salmon, of course, but it involves making a paste of white fish with lobster coral, covering the fish, baking it again with the flavoring of strips of bacon and champagne, then decorating it all with truffles and serving it with a brown sauce infused with more mushrooms and anchovy butter. If you followed all of that, I promise you it really gets easier from here. Aside from its actual creation, the message that would have been sent by serving this kind of dish was based on who created the actual recipe in the first place. The inventor behind this over-the-top assemblage of fish and truffles, decorated with crayfish and more mushrooms and truffles, was the Victorian celebrity chef Charles Elme Francatelli. Francatelli was a chef that never worked in America, and it seems he never even set foot here, but his influence was found in Gilded Age kitchens of the 1870s and 80s in all the best houses. Charles Elmay Francatelli had been in royal service as a chef to Queen Victoria from 1840 to 1842, and while his period in Her Majesty's kitchens at Buckingham Palace was short, his influence, due to his great marketing savvy, was long. The story goes, and there are several murky versions of it, that he was unhappy in royal service because of the inadequate conditions in the palace kitchens. Seems the drainage wasn't quite what it could have been, as well as in part to the unadventurous palates of the royal household. He found it difficult to show off. He was born British, but of Italian parentage, and he'd gone off to Paris to, as he told it, train with the great Marie-Antoine Carême, the father of fine cooking of 19th century France, and many said, and still do, our first real celebrity chef. Francatelli wanted to create theater at the table, and he returned to royal service again later in his career, this time with perhaps the best royal who could appreciate a bit of an outlandish meal— and that was Prince Albert Edward, known as Bertie, who loved nothing more than a show-stopping dinner and, you know, a little flirtation afterwards. But Francatelli published, as did any chef of any level of that time and certainly of today. His books, beginning with The Modern Cook, traveled beyond England and landed in the kitchens of Gilded Age New York. 
An example of this that I dearly love is in Edith Wharton's memoir, A Backward Glance. In describing the kitchen of her 1870s childhood and adolescence, she notes that her mother kept a well-worn copy of Francatelli on her shelves. Now, I want to immediately clarify that Wharton's mother would never have opened it to cook from herself, but she would certainly have consulted with her hired cooks what should be prepared for the next dinner party, designed, of course, to impress her guests. To have a chef in your kitchen that could replicate a dish by Francatelli meant that you'd hired someone who likely had European training, and you have more than one of your kitchen staff available to handle these kind of dishes. And perhaps most of all, any table that offered a dish like salmon a la chambon gave off a whiff of a royal connection, faintly imagined, though it may have been. For those of you who are fans of the great Martin Scorsese 1993 adaptation of Edith Wharton's The Age of Innocence, when you re-watch it, you will see again a recreation of the Salmon a la Chambord at the fictional dinner hosted by Henry and Louisa van der Leiden, taking place in the early years of the Gilded Age, the mid-1870s. The two other great chefs who influenced food a bit later in the Gilded Age were Charles Ranhofer, the famed chef of Delmonico's whom we visited in a recent show, and the great Auguste Escoffier, who, as a chef at both London's Savoy Hotel and the Paris Ritz in the years before the outbreak of World War I, it was he who reimagined food in a way no one had since Antoine Carême, and both chefs, of course, published books. One of my favorite quotes that I often use to explain this age was actually uttered by the great Dowager Countess of Grantham in Fellows, Downton Abbey, who ironically proclaims, nothing succeeds like excess. And by this point, I think you can clearly see how that applies here. Aside from the showing off at the table in terms of dishes and display of china and glassware, which we'll get to, The Gilded Age dinner party functioned on several levels to achieve a very specific goal. First of all, a dinner would act as a kind of vetting exercise to determine if the invited guests were appropriate to bring more deeply into the levels of society, and could of course then be acknowledged. In the days of old New York, the early 1800s, the city was sort of a large town with families related to each other and most with whom one wanted to do business were known to each other. But of course, by the Gilded Age, with the invaders pounding on the gates, anyone with a fortune could hold power, and one's actual ancestry held far less sway than one's trading ability on Wall Street. A dinner party could be a testing ground to see how one acted. Were one's manners and etiquette appropriate? Well, if you passed, you may advance on to perhaps the greatest invitation of them all, Mrs. Astor's grand annual opera ball. And if you didn't, Well, there was usually still time to catch that midnight train back to whatever provincial little town from which you had tried to escape. But for a population with too much money, and at least for many, way too much time, a dinner party had become a new form of entertainment, and society hostesses knew this cold. The idea was to create an atmosphere of delight and amusement as you quaffed your Moet Chandon 1888 and savored your canvasback duck. 
One of Mrs. Astor's great society competitors was the ruthless Mamie Fish, who once had the center of her great dining table carved out and a great tank inserted with goldfish and toy boats bobbing on the surface to give, oh, you know, that nautical feel to a Manhattan mansion and to give her guests something to occupy them if they didn't actually want to talk to their fellow guests. By mid-century, the way a dinner was served had changed. In the early years of the 19th century, and certainly in the century before, the 18th century, in Europe and even here, a dinner would have been served in courses, but not as we know them now. They were called removes in Britain, and diners would enter a dining room with all the dishes for the first course laid out on the table at the same time, perhaps up to 20 depending on the elegance of the meal. Savory and sweet dishes appeared at the same time along with the accompanying vegetables. Soup would have been the only thing that was brought in at the beginning of a meal and then taken away. The entire table would have been cleared and a second remove would have been laid again of upward of 10 or 12 dishes, including what we think of as desserts. Now, many accounts argue as to when and how the change occurred to become service à la Russe, but certainly the shift was made before the early years of the Gilded Age. This was a style known as Russian style, which is the style that we think of today. One dish served on its own, followed by another and another and another, and so on until the highly anticipated and inevitable dessert. Service à la Russe was critical to the showiness of a Gilded Age dinner since it required a great deal more china, more silver, more glassware, not only for the diners, but also to bring and serve the food. All of this meant that the great silver makers such as Tiffany and Gorham were thrown into overdrive, creating the most specific pieces of flatware to serve, in some cases, one single thing. You, of course, had to buy all of these items for a properly laid table and, as yet, one further opportunity to exhibit the amount of silver that you owned. Diners found themselves confronted with an astonishing array. And let's just take the spoons. Macaroni spoons, pea spoons, jelly spoons, confectionery spoons, caviar spoons, horseradish spoons, citrus spoons, and of course, ice cream spoons. As silver makers cranked out more and more and more, you had to stay up to date in order not to make a mistake as you spooned your way up the social ladder. Glassware was, of course, similar. Glasses for champagne, and claret, and white wine, and red wine, and sauterne, and port. And then there was that finger bowl filled with water, often with citrus slices floating in it, that etiquette manuals reminded the undereducated and uninitiated not to drink. What your table service was made of also counted. Sevres and Meissen or Royal Crown Derby certainly conveyed a level of importance, and some hostesses went far beyond that. Mrs. Astor famously had a dinner service in gold plate, which recalls the famous story of Louis XIV, who, when served a dinner on gold plate by his finance minister, realized that some of the francs were being siphoned out of the royal coffers and had his minister immediately imprisoned. I mean, when you serve a dinner on dishes of gold, people do start to wonder... As I say many times, to get the closest and most accurate representation of many of the social customs in the Gilded Age, we must dip into the work of Edith Wharton. 
Particularly in her later works, such as The Age of Innocence, she is scrupulous in the details that she presents and why she presents them. So much of what you need to know about Gilded Age dinner parties can be found in the dining scenes that she gives us. One of the most memorable is the final dinner that we see in the Age of Innocence, and this is the dinner given by the newly married Newland Archer and the former Mae Welland. Under a camouflage of a first dinner party given by a married couple, this is a dinner about loss, sadness, and judgment, as the tribe of Old New York is effectively casting Eleanor Lenska out and sending her back to Europe after a scandalous affair that they can't ignore. We'll look at the details of the dinner in in just a moment, but that in and of itself illustrates another important point about Gilded Age dinners. Diners were rarely there to simply enjoy the food with collegial friends and acquaintances. You were invited most often to a dinner to be seen, assessed, judged, and evaluated under the guise of a tightly controlled, etiquette-regulated affair. What was going on under the gold plate was often a whole other story. Now, to return to the Archer dinner, Edith Wharton tells us the following. It was expected that well-off young couples in New York should do a good deal of informal entertaining, and a Welland married to an Archer was doubly pledged to the tradition. But a big dinner with a hired chef and two borrowed footmen with Roman punch, roses from Henderson's, and menus on gilt-edged cards was a different affair and not to be lightly undertaken. As Mrs. Archer remarked, the Roman punch made all the difference not in itself, but by its manifold implications, since it signified either canvasbacks or terrapin, two soups, a hot and a cold sweet, full décolletage with short sleeves, and guests of a proportionate importance. Here, each detail of food, table settings, and structure of the meal means something. My particular favorite being the appearance of a Roman punch, which signified the choice of dress for such a meal. Now, I want to use this passage to explain two things. One, to address the ubiquitous canvas backs and terrapin, and secondly, to briefly walk you through just how a dinner such as this would have proceeded. Turtle soup had been a favorite on the English Georgian tables at the end of the 18th century as sailors figured out how to transport these incredible creatures from the Caribbean back to England. The taste continued onto American tables, and in the Gilded Age, it was the diamondback terrapin, which is a freshwater species native to the marshy wetlands. The name terrapin derives from the original Algonquin name, particularly along the mid-Atlantic coast. Once incredibly plentiful, the slow breeding cycle and the drastic over-harvesting led to a dramatically reduced terrapin population, and by the years of the Gilded Age, the price for this completely endangered creature was high. One of the greatest lifelines to saving the terrapin was Prohibition, enacted in 1919. The preparation of terrapin required sherry, the drink, and with alcohol prohibited as well, and legislation coming prohibiting commercial harvesting of terrapin, the population was finally left alone. The classic dish as it appeared on Gilded Age tables would have been a sort of stew made with chunks of meat and sherry, Madeira, rich stock, and perhaps a bit of cream and butter. The canvasback duck shared the similar history and fate of the terrapin, although an actual ban on hunting then was imposed in the early 1900s, which brought them back from the brink of extinction. 
Canvasbacks were prized for their deep, red, flavorful meat, usually served with a hominy cake and a sauce of currants, claret or port, orange or ginger, and a bit of vinegar. A formal dinner like this could include eight or nine courses, even up to 12. Your first taste was likely some oysters or perhaps a bit of caviar. Then you began with soup, one, if not two, and Wharton has been very specific here about the inclusion of two. A light clear consomme or bouillon followed by a creamier soup creme of asparagus or mushroom perhaps. You would only receive about a half a ladleful if there were two. Fish was next and it was served on its own with no vegetable accompaniments. The principal meat course was next and it was called a relevé, which was not plated ahead of time and you served it yourself from a waiter's offered tray. You see, now, the need for all those extra footmen. And then would come the entrée or the entremet, which were lighter dishes like foie gras, I did say lighter, and this is where you would have found the terrapin. The roast was next. This was often game or the canvas backs, and it would be served with vegetables, although once again, you served yourself from a waiter's tray. A salad was next if served, and it could be served with the roast course itself. Now, this is not a tossed salad, as we might imagine, but a mixture of diced, sliced, pickled, or cured vegetables, sometimes in a mold. The meal ended with a selection of desserts, both hot and cold, including almost certainly the ubiquitous ice cream. Wharton notes a Roman punch would have been served in the middle. The appearance of a Roman punch at a Gilded Age dinner indicated the real importance of the occasion. Roman punch in the Gilded Age was not really a cocktail. It was more of a heavily iced palate cleanser between courses at a formal dinner, if you will. It has since been fashioned into a modern cocktail. Delmonico's preparation from 1894 for Roman punch presents it as a lemon-flavored ice with Italian meringue whipped in and copious additions of rum and champagne and encourages the addition of other spirits of your own choosing and advises the punch should be sufficiently liquid to be drunk without using a spoon and as soon as served. Serve in upright glasses provided with handles. The Roman punch went out of style as the Gilded Age dimmed, and by the 1920s, when she published her first edition of her Bible on Etiquette, the great Emily Post pronounced it passé. It is, of course, time now to take a break. I'm going to refill my teacup, but I want you to imagine you were at a formal dinner with Roman punch about to be served. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. And today we're taking a look at the world of food and dining at some very select Gilded Age dinner parties. We've talked a lot in this show already about dining at home, which for a great deal of the 19th century is what dining out actually meant. But now I want to take a look at the world of dining out in this time, some private dinners in the grand restaurants. And briefly share at least a couple of dinners that would have been pretty hard to pull off at home. The Last Supper that we will visit takes place as part of a grand ball in the mansion of Mrs. Astor herself. As the Gilded Age hit full force starting in the early 1880s, New York and America was taking its cue from Paris. 
Paris as a city was evolving too, and throughout the 19th century, the city was transforming from its cramped medieval structure to the glamorous stage set that it wanted the world to see. As grand boulevards replaced the tiny congested streets, Parisian life moved onto the wide sidewalks and the restaurants, the dramatic new form of entertainment, competed with the grand performances at opera houses and theaters, as to which could actually put on a bigger show. Restaurant dining rooms were designed for one to see and be seen with balconies and grand staircases, enormous mirrors and huge chandeliers reflecting the light. And the dishes arriving at the table were culinary architectural masterpieces with complicated sauces and elegantly sculptured presentations. New York kept its golden diamond-edged binoculars trained on the restaurant scene in Paris and created as much of it as possible here. Many say Delmonico's established the concept of fine dining here in America, at least in New York, and other restaurants such as the Maison Dorée, named for the restaurant of the same name on Paris's Boulevard des Italiennes, and the hotel dining rooms of the Fifth Avenue Hotel and the Brunswick, made an attempt to infuse an essence of Paris in the rapidly developing entertainment districts of Union and later Madison Squares. We are definitely entering the world of extravagant dining designed to impress. One of the most legendary of all the dinners at Delmonico's was the famous Swan Dinner in 1874. Importer Edward Luckmeyer had found himself with a bit of a windfall with an extra $200,000 burning a hole in his pocket, and he decided to tell Charles Delmonico, the famed restaurateur, to do whatever he wished for a spectacular dinner for 72 of Luckmeyer's best friends. Guests arrived to find the dining room had been transformed into a country scene as if they were in the middle of Central Park. And to describe it, I quote from our friend from a recent show, Ward McAllister. His account in his memoir is a great one, and he should know because he was there. The tables were covered the whole length and breadth of the room, and every inch of it was covered with flowers except for the center left for a lake. It was an oval pond nearly the width of the table enclosed by delicate golden wire reaching from the table to the ceiling, making one grand cage. Four grand swans swam in it. Above the entire table were little golden cages with songbirds who filled the room with their melody, interrupted occasionally by the splashing in the lake of the swans. Tiffany had spared no expense in creating the cage. And you sat at your place around the table with enough room for your table setting and glasses and a hedge of flowers in front of you to prevent you from being splashed by the swans. With all of that going on, how could you really pay attention to the food? But if you think this is as outrageous as it got, I do have some further news for you, my friends. As we landed at what some say was the very height of the Gilded Age in the early to mid-1880s, a serious competitor to Delmonico's had appeared ready to do battle. The competitor to Delmonico's that crept in in the 1880s was Louis Sherry. Sherry was of French extraction, and he was born in St. Albans, Vermont in 1855. He had his first real job as a hotel busboy in Montreal, but came to New York to begin his true hospitality training. 
He worked at another of the famous Madison Square hotels in the restaurant of the Brunswick House, before becoming manager of the Hotel Elberon out on the Jersey Shore. Sherry was clearly a born marketer from the start, and he watched this newly moneyed clientele closely trying to give them what they wanted before they knew they wanted it. He opened his own restaurant, which continued to move uptown like everything and everyone else until he landed on Fifth Avenue at 44th Street by late 1898, which was where Delmonico's itself had landed just a year before. Sherry presented New York with a Stanford White-designed elegant French palace complete with reception and drawing rooms and a stunning ballroom. Now the two greatest restaurateurs were directly across the street from each other. New York's restaurant wars had officially begun. Louis Sherry, too, had a flair for the theatrical and really outdid himself, I have to say, at one particular and what was to become a very famous dinner, which took place in 1903. You could think of it as one last blast of Gilded Age ostentation. Millionaire and businessman C.K.G. Billings was an avid horseman. He'd inherited a gas company from which he made his millions, but he'd really rather be on the track. He built a stable overlooking the Hudson and a fine European-styled mansion in Upper Manhattan. Wanting to celebrate the opening of his stable, his plan was to throw a dinner for 36 of his friends in the stables themselves. Well, the press discovered his plan, and to avoid the press intrusion, he went to Sherry to ask that his host create a special dinner in Sherry's ballroom. No problem, Sherry replied, and Billings agreed to invite his guests instead to Sherry's for dinner. The 36 guests gathered in formal white tie to file into the room, and when they entered, they saw the room transformed into an English country pasture with fake turf and panels of painted scenery, and in the center were the horses. Saddled and ready for the diners to mount and receive their dinner on horseback served on silver trays fixed to the saddles. Each guest and the horse was assigned a groom to handle the service and make sure that the bottles of champagne in the saddlebags were kept chilled and the tubes stayed connected for riders to quench their thirst. Jockey waiters brought out course after course to be eaten on the silver trays anchored to the horse's backs in front of each rider. The menu began with caviar on toast points, followed by a turtle soup. The fish course featured trout with a sauce of shallots, chervil, and chives. Rack of lamb with glazed vegetables was presented as the meat course, and the whole meal ended with flambéed peaches and coffee. Now, in case you wondered how the horses got into this second-floor ballroom, it was an engineering feat performed with Sherry's staff, the freight elevator, and likely a special diet for the horses to, you know, prevent any mishaps. Lastly, and also in case you were also wondering... The price tag of all of this was approximately $1.4 million in today's money. Billings had paid just under $40,000 for each diner to have his table on horseback. I am sure Louis Sherry was very pleased. Now, the last dinner that I want to take you to to round out our little tour here of dining during the Gilded Age was, like the Swan Dinner and the Horseback Dinner, a real one. I'm going to take you into the ballroom of the famed Mrs. Astor herself, and we will attend together a ball and a supper 
one of the very last that she ever gave. And thanks to our friend Lewis Sherry, we know exactly what Mrs. Astor served at her ball this particular evening. She had hired him to cater it. And we have the notes from the original Sherry catering notebooks to look at today. Mrs. Astor was famous for her annual opera ball held on the first Monday night in January. For some, they had worked their social calendars the whole year to make sure that they received the coveted invitation handwritten on the heavy, elegant card. This particular ball took place on January 9th, 1899. An opera ball began, of course, with attending the opera, which Mrs. Astor didn't do on that night that she gave her ball. She remained in her mansion at 65th Street and 5th Avenue and awaited her guests, who began to arrive around 11 p.m. And just let me add, imagine the condition that you may have been in having just sat through the better part of Wagner's Lohengrin, which is what was on that night. Lohengrin clocks in at about four hours of music, and then you have to add in the intermissions, likely two of those. But then remember, you would have left long before the final curtain, as long as you put in an appearance, to make your way uptown. To withstand attending the opera for several hours, followed by a ball until perhaps three o'clock in the morning, you had to have a constitution of steel and wear a corset. A ball supper was usually a buffet arrangement served continuously throughout the early hours of the morning with dishes replenished throughout the night. But not at Mrs. Astor's ball. She preferred a sit-down affair after a bit of dancing, of course, at around one in the morning. The menu, Sherry notes it was for 400 guests, of course, included a classic bouillon to start, followed by chicken in a Madeira sauce with truffles, followed by beef stuffed with mushrooms and potatoes, terrapin, of course, and then the famous canvas back duck, followed by pâté de foie gras, a salad of finely diced vegetables with probably more truffles, and a dessert of ice cream. One of the surprising things when you look at the menus, and I don't mean restaurant menus here, but I mean these menus from so many of these dinners in private mansions and homes, is just how unadventurous so many of these meals actually were. Two of the dishes that occur again and again are, as we've noted, the canvas back duck and the Maryland terrapin. If there were ever two signature dishes of the Gilded Age, it would have been these two. And of course, while they could in fact be delicious, it was mostly because they were very expensive to serve. A fact lost on no one. Depending on who you talk to, the Gilded Age died with the turn of the century or in some form dragged on until the outbreak of World War I in Europe. The institution of legislation that regulated wealth, the progressive movement under Roosevelt, and finally prohibition in 1919 capped most of the extravagance. It certainly helped save the Terrapin population. But as we now see, a certain Gilded Age exists even today, although perhaps without dinners of canvas back duck, plates of gold, diamond napkin rings, and live swans on your table. Unfortunately, photographic imagery is virtually non-existent of actual meals in the Gilded Age. What we have often shows dinners, almost always with men, sitting around enormous tables with empty plates. I, of course, wish we could see the food. And it all just makes me think what it would have looked like if Mrs. Astor had had an account on Instagram. 
thank you so much for joining me for another episode of The Gilded Gentleman. And if you have enjoyed today's show, please leave a review as you know your calling card. Don't you know? I'll see you soon. And after all, what's life without a little glint of gold? If you liked what you heard today, go to Carl's website, thegildedgentleman.com, or his Instagram, Carl with a C, Carl the Gilded Gentleman. As always, we recommend that you should listen to Bowery Boys podcast on New York City history at BoweryBoysHistory.com. The Bowery Boys, our friends who, as the Bowery Boys media, are the producers of Carl's show. So thanks to Greg and Tom and Carl for letting us feature them on the show today. We um, really appreciate it. You're the best. As for us, we will be in London. Hooray! At last, the five times canceled History Chicks field trip is finally on deck. We are flying out this Friday and we are not going to be producing a show from London, but we will be letting you follow our journey through our Instagram and Twitter and our other social media presence. (laughs) Um, We're not quite sure what form that will take. It might (laughs) take the form of sweaty faces at a monument screaming into the wind, but we shall see how that goes. And um, we will see you in July. The end song is from Silhouettes, Opus 8, Movement Number 5, Presto, by Dvorak. It was released the same year that we have been opening our Gilded Age coverage. Thanks for listening. Bye! <laughs>